Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. And we stand, a symbolic gesture of honoring the Word of God. Let's stand together. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. When you read the accounts in the book of Acts of Paul going to various cities to plant churches, it is a wonder and a marvel that Christianity survived. It seems that everywhere he preached, he faced disruption and distractions. There were riots, vehement opposition, persecution, prison for Paul. Everywhere he preached, he faced detractors and disparaging. He he would leave and people would come in after him and malign him. And everywhere he preached, there were distortions of his gospel. In some cases, more so than in others, disfiguring the message of grace and spraying graffiti all over the beauty of Jesus. Thessalonians is no exception. And it's worsened by the fact that Paul, in the middle of the night, is whisked away from the city by some friends, apparently for his own safety, as the situation in Thessalonica grew more volatile. And by this quick absence, he became an easy target for his critics. 
See, he's bailing on you. He's got sinister reasons for coming here in the first place. And the first half of this chapter is devoted to Paul answering this question. He thinks it is serious enough to deal with all of the disparaging disruption, and he he needs to address it. That's what we have here. And he basically does two things. He summons two witnesses, and then he's his own witness. And being his own witness, that's going to be the longest part of the sermon. So let's look at how Paul, writing at some distance, both uh, geographically and time, from his church planting time in Thessalonica, needs to address those who were disparaging his ministry. First of all, he summons two witnesses. Not for his own ego is he defending his ministry, beloved, but for the sake of the gospel. And there were serious charges leveled against Paul. Something like this. He starts riots. Not true. He preached from money. Not true. He just wants people to like him. Not true. He'll take advantage of you because he doesn't love you. Not true. He has a prison record. True. For preaching Jesus Christ, he is in fact thrown in prison. And the backstory here is in Paul's day, there were charlatans, snake oil salesmen. They actually went by the name evangelists that came from city to city, fooling people. And eventually the masses caught on to this and they grew cynical of any new teaching that came along. Christianity was new in Thessalonica. So like us, they were a little suspicious. Oh, you're just being nice to us because you want to sell us something. And look, if the accusations were true, people needed to know. If if I heard that you were going to see a doctor, and I knew that the last 50 people this doctor treated never got well, I needed to warn you. I needed to have you talk to those witnesses. So Paul's two witnesses to his ministry there are the Thessalonians themselves and God. Notice the repetition in the text, verse 1. You yourselves know. Verse 9. You remember. Verse 5. As you know, God is witness. Verse 10. You are witnesses and so is God. So I want to raise this question. What, What would you have to believe if you were Paul, to call upon God as a witness to his ministry there, what would you have to believe? Well, first of all, you'd have to believe that God sees everything, he knows everything, and he judges the motives of your heart. You'd have to believe that. You'd have to have a kind of integrity and transparency before the Lord. Secondly, you'd have to believe that it mattered to God because God has an intense interest in his own name, his reputation as it were, God wants to be known as he is, just like you. If you ran a business and there were people spreading lies about the way you conducted business, you would be terribly upset about that. God is jealous for his own name. Turn in the bulletin to page 4. I want to reference the text John Daly read for us earlier from Ezekiel because it brings this out. Ezekiel writes, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, 
But for the sake of my holy name, what is driving God to act? His own name's sake. You have profaned my name among the nations. Not good. See, the way Israel lived, if they bore the name Israel, the way they lived and spoke and conducted business and did this and that, it was saying something about the God they said was their God. This matters deeply to God, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations and which have profaned among them. So God wants to set the record straight. Israel, the way you've conducted yourselves, has spoken falsely about who I am. What is God going to do about it? The nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the Lord God, when for you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now pause. What exactly is the way God is going to reveal the glory of his great name and reverse the way sinful Israel is profaning the name of the God? What is the He's going to save them by his grace through the gospel. That's how he's going to do it. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. And then verse 27, you'll walk in my statutes. Translated, beloved, your life and my life will profane the name of God until he gives us the ability to obey him. (laughs) It's all his grace. It's all the power of the Holy Spirit. So what are you required to believe about God? Everything he has revealed about himself in his word, nothing more, nothing less. There's no permission given to Bible believers to have any construct of God apart from what he has revealed, no more, no less. And bless the Lord, you are in a Bible-believing church for that very reason. That's one witness. Paul calls on God as his witness. Then he calls on them as his witnesses. What's required for them to be Paul's witnesses? They were transformed by his ministry. They knew the grace that came to them through the apostle and his friends. They would say, my life is different for what the Apostle Paul brought me in the good news of Jesus Christ. You would be sorely pressed to find among the people that knew and loved Paul and heard him preach, you would be sorely pressed to find a person who said, my life is worse off. They're the witnesses. One of the great privileges of being a pastor over the years, the decades, is the number of people I've talked to and heard this simple answer to this question. How did you become a Christian? And some of the testimonies go like this. I grew up in a home that didn't go to church. My my dad wasn't a very nice person, and he became a Christian. He was a dramatically different person. We began going to church, and I wanted to be a Christian because dad was so dramatically changed by Jesus. What a testimony. And sometimes it's in the reverse. Somebody will say, well, I ran with the wild crowd. And God saved me. He brought me to Christ. And I went back to my friends in the wild crowd to tell them about Jesus. And they disowned me. You hear that testimony? They themselves are Paul's best letter of recommendation as he uses that image in 1 Corinthians. And that's the first part. 
Paul needs to address. Serious slander thrown against him and his gospel. Now let's move on to the second part. He's his own witness. And the idea is his grace-oriented ministry mirrors the grace of God. So you would expect God, as it were, to reflect the character of God in the way he did ministry. And what I want to show you from the text is basically he throws four slides up on the screen. Four slides that describe the way he conducted himself among the Thessalonians. These also are beautiful attributes of God. First slide, he's shameless. Second slide, sensitive. Third slide, sincere. Fourth slide, sacrificial. Those are the qualities he is reminding his readers and us of how he did business, as it were, in Thessalonica. So let's look at these in turn. Number one, he said we were shameless. Verse 10, your witnesses, God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Was he perfect? No. But authentic, transparent, humble, credible? Not trying to be something he isn't? Or hide something that he is. You know, when he got up in the morning and thought about his ministry, he would probably pray, Lord, no glaring contradictions when I bear your image to the people I'm ministering to. And so whenever Paul's detractors accused him of something to the people in the church, again, Paul's not there to defend himself, these people could say what? That's not the Paul I know. I remember a very different Paul. Whenever I find out that someone I'm talking to works at a restaurant that I go to, I want to know, oh, what's it like to work there? What's it like in the kitchen? Do you eat the food? Why do I want to know that? For obvious reasons. If they won't eat the food at the restaurant they work in, why should I? God calls us to feed our souls on the gospel. How different are you looking as you do? Can your kids tell, moms and dads, that you're a regular digester of the power of the cross? Are there visible signs Jesus is changing you? Here's a suggestion. Work on one thing at a time. Don't be overwhelmed by all the things that need changing in your life. Take one thing at a time. Choose a season where you pray through the fruit of the Spirit. Every morning, you pray the fruit of the Spirit into your life. Or go to your spouse or a really close friend and say, I'm struggling with impatience. I'm struggling with a critical spirit. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with sloth. There's parts of my pride that are showing up in ways I want to work on. Ask your spouse to help you with that. Ask your friends to help you with that. Get it out in the open. 
they can see that you struggle with that. <laughs> it's obvious. Get it out there. Ask for help. Pray for me in this. They might give you a scripture. They might give you a song. They might give you... Take one thing at a time. It's, I want it evident that when I'm digesting the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's showing up in this part of my life. Maybe I'm making this point. Everything Paul did was intentional and for a good reason. He had a very specific goal and it was not random acts of kindness. It was verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God has this incredible calling for you to enjoy him forever in sinless paradise, in his presence. We begin walking in a way that comports with that. That's his passion, that the glory of God be manifested in the lives of the people and in his own life that he's ministering to. This is the way he put it in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Jesus' name on it. Students, your term papers, your tests, the way you do dishes in your apartment, put Jesus' name on it. Boys and girls, the way you decide to help out mom. Put Jesus' name on it. When we first moved to Texas, I noticed in the neighborhood all, all the streets were cement and the driveways were cement, and I noticed that where the driveways, in many cases, met the cement road, there was an imprint in, in the cement driveway, and it was obviously the builder's logo or the builder's name. You know, share it constructing. It was imprinted in the cement. That, that contractor took pride. He's willing to put his name on his work. When Jesus calls you to belong to himself, you get a new name. Christian, you're his work. He wants you to, he wants you to demonstrate, to reveal his workmanship. Paul wants his ministry to bear the imprint of God, and that's why he clarifies both the source and the motives of his ministry. Notice what the source is. What it does not come from. Verse 3, our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Now each one of those words could be a whole sermon. Just say briefly about each. Our, our message does not come from error. Now the, one of the places you get error in theology is you start with the wrong presuppositions about God. For example, when I went to college, my freshman year of college, I took a class in the New Testament. I thought, oh, great, it's going to be a long Bible study. No, it really wasn't that. And then one time the professor was lecturing, and he was talking about the miracle of the 5,000, and he said, you know, here's what happened. When Jesus started sharing his bread with the apostles, everybody in the crowd saw that generosity was inspired. They started sharing their bread with each other, and that's how everybody got fed. Now, apart from the fact that as a serious violation of the text... They didn't have any food, apart from that fact. What's wrong with it? Well, he obviously started with the presupposition, miracles don't happen. There's no such thing as a man turning two loaves of bread into enough food to feed 5,000 people. Bad presuppositions lead to bad conclusions about who God is. Error. This word impurity had sexual connotation. That meant there were teachers purporting to teach people about God, and more was going on in the classroom than theology. Hideous! Disgraceful! 
And he says, our, our, our message does not from, come, come from deceit. That was a word used for a fishing where you hide the bait, you hide the hook and show the bait. So there are teachers who want to teach you, but they, what they really were about, they weren't telling you. Deceitful. Where, in fact, does Paul's message come from? Look at verse 4. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Whose gospel is it? God's. And so, and so Paul's a guy who said, who believes James 3, chapter 1? The brother of Jesus, James, wrote this. Let not many of you become teachers. You're going to incur a stricter judgment. Paul believed that. He wanted his gospel to reveal what God says about the gospel. And beloved, how about his motives? Since the, his, Paul's detractors were assigning sinister motives to Paul, he needs to address this. And he refutes three shameful motives they accused him of. First of all, words of flattery. That would be tailoring the message to get people to feel good about themselves or tailoring the message to get people to like him. What shape does that take in our day? I, from my experience, it's, it's at churches that don't talk about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin, or the horror of Jesus' cross. You can go to some churches and you, you'd never know you were a sinner. Why have a church? <laughs> Why have a church? Why have a Savior? And then he says, nor with a pretext for greed. These are the people that say, send your money in and we'll buy you your miracle. It hadn't changed in 2,000 years, beloved. And he says, we didn't seek glory from people. Janice and I have friends in the South who apparently, there's a big mega church there that when the pastor walks in to do a sermon, everybody stands up and applauds. I just don't believe that would ever exist in a Christian church. I'm sorry, I just, that just drops my jaw. What? Let's move on. Second slide. Sensitive. Paul identifies what two kinds of sensitivity in the quality of his ministry. Motherly and fatherly. Verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 11, for you know how like a father would his own children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charged you. Don't you love this? Paul was both mother and father. Can a man say he acted like a mother among people? Well, God does. Isaiah 66, 13, as a mother comforts her child, I will comfort you. So gentle and motherly is the power of God that Isaiah 42, 3 says, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Jesus said, come to me, I am gentle and humble in heart. You know, Jesus took kids into his lap. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. When is a mother's affection most needed? In the early years. In the early years. What are mothers doing in the early years? They're nourishing their kids and changing diapers. <laughs> that means in young Christians, they need a lot of nourishment, and they're going to make messes. 
Paul's wanting to step into the messes. That's what babies do. They make messes. Paul says, we were fatherly among you. That's, addre- that's addressing the role of discipline, teaching, correction. No doubt the people in the church brought into their lives bad habits from their former way of living. Paul says, that's not good for you. This is the way of life. This is the way to walk. This is going to hurt you. Father, mother. Just beautiful. You say a lot more about that. Third slide. He's sincere. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you'd become dear to us. That is just one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. Why do I call this sincere? Remember the way Paul arrived in Thessalonica. He had been beaten with rods in Philippi. He walks into town bearing these bruises. And it didn't stop him from walking into another situation where he was certain to face suffering. In other words, he's a man gripped and driven by something bigger than his own safety. That was not the issue with Paul. Consequently, they found Paul to be a man profoundly God-centered and profoundly other-centered. We're here for you even though we know it's going to hurt us. And look what Paul gave us. Paul imparted to us the truth of the gospel, salvation, and what else? Himself. Some of us find it easy just to talk about theology. We love theology. It's not what Paul did. They got good theology, but they got Paul's heart. When I was a quarterback, quarterbacks have to call a huddle for the next play. Come on in, come on in, in. call the play. Now break, get to the line, we've got to run the play. We've got 30 seconds to get the play off. I don't think that happened. I think Paul took time. How are you doing? Let me listen. There's no huddle to break in a hurry. They got to know each other's hearts, feelings, dreams, desires. It was profoundly personal, so Paul can say, you became dear to us. We want that happening in our home groups, in our Bible studies, in our small groups. Become dear to each other. These are the qualities you want to be looking for in the men you nominate for office. Last slide. What is Paul doing? He is his own witness in the face of detractors. He's defending the nature of a grace-driven ministry among the Thessalonians. Fourth slide, sacrificial. Verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. There was a price to be paid for Paul to get them the gospel literally. He had needs. He had bills to pay. And to not be a burden, remember a couple weeks ago we said that probably when Paul walked in the town, what's the first place he found? What's the first place he found? To preach. First place he went? Synagogue. Common ground. He went to the synagogue. So he walks into town, excuse me, sir, where's the synagogue? There he goes. Next thing he needs to find, the tent maker shop. He is by trade a tent maker. 
Excuse me. John, is that your name back there? John, where's the tent maker's shop? Oh, two, two streets down, take a left, see the big tree, take a right. There's the tent maker's shop. Okay, he goes there, he finds work. Not like three hours a day. It says we work night and day. So let's suppose you and I are in Thessalonica at the time. And I see, uh, I see Radu, and I say, Radu, isn't Paul coming to the Bible study at 6? It's like 5.45, and Radu says, Mike, he's at work. He is stitching tents with his hands. This man, who's probably the greatest intellect of the decade, has to be one of the greatest men ever to live as an apostle of Jesus Christ, is sitting on the sidelines, watching all the big players, stitching tents. But then he goes from work to the Bible study. And sometimes Radu tells me he goes back to work after the Bible study. Day and night, he's working. What is that all about? Paul is saying, I'll do the work for you. I'll pay the price. Who does that sound like to you? Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus says to you, I'll do the work for you. I'll pay the price. Beloved, you know that King Jesus had every right to come to this earth and demand of every single creature, you and me, demand moral perfection. You must love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And if you don't, you are condemned to an eternity apart from God. Jesus could have come to earth demanding that. Actually, he will the second time. But the first time he came saying, all do the work. All pay the price. Everything you owe God in terms of righteousness and holiness, Jesus said, I'm doing. And he did. Not for a second did that precious God-man deviate from the will of God in body, soul, heart, strength, and mind. Not for a second. He did the work for you. You owe God no righteousness. It's been done for you. And I'll pay the price. On the cross, the penalty of law-breaking is eternal separation from God. And this is what Jesus underwent on his hideous cross. Somehow, in the mystery of the economy of God, Jesus suffered the hell all the sinners deserve that he died for. He suffered it on Good Friday. I'll do the work. I'll pay the cost. You are free. You're loved. A hymn writer who I love, John Barrage, wrote this in one of his hymns. Run, John, and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands, but sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. Jesus Christ is all you need. He's everything. The great reformer Martin Luther put it this way, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus, the Son of God, has done for me. Let that transform your life, and your life will be lots of beautiful slides for other people to see. Let's pray. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus, that all that we need you have done for us. You did the work. You paid the price. Thank you for our beloved brother Paul. How he was so jealous to model that before initially strangers and then folks with whom he fell deeply in love. 
May it be so among us, a deep love, cherishing of one another, because we're so confident you did the work, you paid the price. In Jesus' name.